0: Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Cause we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Welcome, Michael. I am really happy to have you on the show. I know you've had a very long relationship with selected shorts. How big of a reader were you when you were growing up? Oh,
1: a very big reader. I read all the time. What did you love? Gosh, I read the collected works of Beverly Cleary. I feel like I read the collected Narnia books, which is like 15 books. I read all of Judy Bloom. I read all of Encyclopedia Brown. And my favorite were the Great Brain books by John D. Fitzgerald, which I loved.
0: I love everything you just mentioned. These are classics. The Great Brain, I think, I wonder if kids still read them. You have kids around that age or?
1: I I did. My children are now senior age children in, in the sense that they are adults. They are adult children now.
0: Oh, so you can't force them to read The Great Brain anymore.
1: No, I can't force them to read anything. And for many years, neither of my children read very much. But now my daughter has suddenly taken a great interest in reading, which is terrific. And so if I could just get my son to do the same, I feel like I will have accomplished my job as a parent. And then I can just fade into ash.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I read something long ago that a way that you can get your kids to read. And this doesn't apply to senior children, but is to sort of basically make the book into what I call a hot object. Like when they're getting into bed if they're reading, say, put that book away. Because then <laughs> it becomes this thing <laughs> that right. is alluring. So maybe you can go, how old you know, you can go to your son and, and just sort of stop him from reading. You know what he
1: reads actually? He reads manga comic books. He's 21 years old. You'd think his tastes would have evolved. They have not.
0: But even if he's like reading a shampoo bottle, just take it away. <laughs> and then soon he's going to be doing Proust. All right. I'll try it. A tip. It worked for me and my kids. What can I say? What can I say?
1: I'll try it. I Yeah.
0: You've written so much. Have you wanted to write a novel?
1: Oh, desperately. I would love to write a novel.
0: Have you tried? Have you been doing that?
1: I have... Yeah, I've made stabs at it, and then I get about 20 or 30,000 words in, and I'm like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what I'm doing. This is terrible. And then I give up. And I've done that maybe five or six times.
0: Oh, wow. So, But you think you might keep trying again?
1: I Yeah, I mean, that's sort of my big bucket list thing left for me, is writing a novel. Um, but I don't know how to do it. I mean, I guess you just start writing, and then you just see what happens.
0: I don't know if you want writing novel tips, but sure sure well one thing i would say and i have something that i sort of jokingly call my 80 page plan that i tell students which is sit down and write something you don't have to know what it is you don't have to worry if it's publishable or if people will be mad at you or if it's good just write anything and then i mean i say 80 pages because that's enough to feel that you've accomplished something but not so much that you feel you've ruined and wasted your life and you should fade into ash as you say But you know, so it could be 50 pages or 40 pages. Print it out in a new font. New fonts are really helpful. They make it look like a new book. Go sit somewhere, and now you're dealing with not the book that you wanted to write, but the book that you did write. And then you start to know what it is. And I don't know if that's ever gonna be helpful, but um, it's sort of how I began. And there's like a freedom at first.
1: Well, I tell you what I love about the idea is using a new font. That just seems so exciting to me
0: i think that is perhaps the best thing i'm going to say on the show
1: <laughs> or, I, I only write in times new roman no no the idea then of printing it out in helvetica or something is just tantalizing
0: try not to do one of the ones that makes it look like a medieval illuminated manuscript try to do one of, like palatino okay is actually really kind of nice except i will just say one more obsessive thing about fonts some of them make it look shorter and then you're like what i wrote 50 pages why is it saying i wrote 20.
1: oh no that's terrible
0: that's the you know so you can make them larger Mm -hmm. and you can change the font and this is to all people who want to write out there
1: maybe uh, change the type size too just make it two points larger and then you feel like you've written even
0: more well the truth is i think everybody in the arts and even athletes anybody doing something that involves a lot of focus a lot of concentration really needs to make things new. Mm -hmm. They need to psych themselves out or up into some new state. And I think doing that helps because you get so quickly when you're writing into this kind of sluggish phase. It's the middle. And that can be true actually when reading. Do you have that experience at all when reading that you're, you're in the middle and you're like, I'm lost, I'm bored? I feel like it's entirely book dependent. Yeah, it is. What about your podcast? called Obscure. Tell us about that because I'm thinking about that now.
1: Oh, well, sometimes that happens. So that is a podcast uh, whose premise is I pick a book that I've never read before and have no desire to read, read it out loud and comment on it as I go. And so I've done three seasons of that. The first season was Jude the Obscure, which I had no desire to read. The second season was Frankenstein, which I had equally no desire to read. And then this season is Wuthering Heights, which I had no desire to read. And each of them has been uh, terrific in their own way.
0: Does your son listen to your podcast?
1: No, my son has no interest in me whatsoever beyond what I can do for him from a fiduciary point of view. (laughs) (laughs) That's not true, I'm exaggerating. We love each other very much, but no, he doesn't pay any attention to my work.
0: I'm just wondering if they're like workarounds, you know? I, I'm, I just believe in wearing the sandwich board for getting people to read. But it is, it is hard. It can be hard if people are resistant. But your podcast is, I think, probably will lure some resistant, reluctant readers who are daunted by the classics.
1: Well, I hope so, because that was sort of the idea for me, because I'm daunted by the classics. And I always think, oh, this stuffy old book. And then you read it and you're like, oh, wait, this is actually kind of exciting. And there's fabulous writing and interesting characters and terrible things happen. And I love in books when terrible things happen.
0: Do you know what Wuthering means? Windy. Very good. I know. I looked at, I did not. Did you know that before?
1: No, 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 of course not. No. How could anybody know that?
0: Have you been trying to drop it into conversation a lot? I
1: know, but I should.
0: <laughs> I highly recommend it, you know? You will impress your friends and your fans. <laughs> Which was the best of the three?
1: Probably Jude, although I'm I'm only about halfway through Wuthering Heights. I didn't like Frankenstein as a book. I think it's a bad book. Did you like The Monster? Yeah, the monster is, a re- is the redeeming character in the book. I mean, it is the, he's the sort of moral center of the book, which is interesting, but it's slow. It just sort of trudges along. There's not nearly enough mayhem. There's not nearly enough murder. Uh, the monster isn't monstrous enough. It's just a trudge. I, I wanted fast-paced action. I wanted the Frankenstein of my imagination, not the Frankenstein of reality. It's just a weird, weird structure of a book.
0: Well, we don't have any of that with short stories for the most part. And I want to talk a little bit about the story that you read, I Love Girl by Simon Rich. Yes. Right? It's a wonderful story. It's so funny. But tell me about this story and your experience of reading it and reading it aloud.
1: One of the great things about good humor writing to me is... I have this experience more frequently than other people would have it because I'm also a stand up comedian. So sometimes, as a stand up comedian, you'll write something and you'll think, I think this is funny. But then you present it to an audience and they either confirm or deny that it's funny. And so that was my experience with reading Simon's story. Reading it in my head, I thought, well, this is funny. And then having that confirmation when I read it out loud. What just felt great. It's very, I, I, and I imagine for him, incredibly validating because as a writer, you probably rarely get to hear your words read aloud. And so to hear it and hear the reaction must must just feel terrific.
0: Well, it's weird when you give readings as a fiction writer because you have in your mind what lines people will think are funny or will respond to. And when they don't, you're kind of like, What's wrong with you people? Or you you know, you know, pause, waiting for the response, and it doesn't come. I mean, maybe, that, maybe that's true in stand-up too, right?
1: Yeah, and the other thing you find is things that you didn't know were funny often get a bigger reaction than things you thought were funny.
0: Right. The worst thing to do as a writer when you give a reading, though, is to suddenly change something, like up there at the podium. I've done this. And then a minute later, you realize, oh my god, there's a reason why I didn't do it that way. It doesn't make any sense now. Now I've ruined the thread and you have to kind of backtrack. <laughs> so,
1: Well, have you ever had the opposite experience where something that you hadn't written, you sort of change and it gets a better reaction than what you had written? Yes. That must feel terrible because then you've gotten, I mean, if it's already published.
0: Oh, there's so many chances for humiliation and terrible feelings as a writer. Do you, I mean, maybe you don't agree with that.
1: Well, I, I agree with it, but I would expand it to say there's so many opportunities for humiliation in life in general.
0: Yes, but being a writer is like a bullion cube concentrate of that. <laughs> you know, you find out what people think of you all the time, whether, right? right? like Or as a stand-up, you do too. And as
1: an actor, you do too.
0: And as a writer, you get a review.
1: Yeah, oh no, it's it, it's terrible. Any creative endeavor, let's be honest, is terrible.
0: And yet, we love it and can't do anything else, right? That's right. The story has a kind of almost stand up quality to it. Like it's like it feels performative in some way. Mm -hmm. Like you really, I mean, people say laugh out loud funny and they don't really mean that. They just mean I found it funny. Mm -hmm. Like people say to you as a fiction writer, I cried at the end. Like I want to say, really? Yeah, I don't
1: think so. You meant
0: you felt sad, but it's code. (laughs) It's code.
1: (laughs) I have always sort of believed that any praise you get, you cut it in half. And any criticism you get, you cut that in half. Like, you know, we're, we're encouraged, I think, to express ourselves in ways that aren't necessarily accurate when, when when reacting to something. To say, I loved something. Rarely, I feel like, do I did I love something? Or I found something hysterical. Rarely do I find something hysterical. Or the phrase like, wickedly funny, which to me just means probably not funny.
0: I know. Or... A thing you have to say about books that you might not have loved, like moving and lyrical.
1: To me, that implies boring.
0: So basically, that means Frankenstein for you.
1: Oh, yeah. So boring. And it is lyrical.
0: It is. But do you think language has fallen away in the culture of readers? Like the interest in language? No.
1: There's plenty of great language. Like I'm reading a book right now called Let the Great World Spin by... Oh, Colin McCann. Colin McCann. And it's just filled with beautiful, evocative, lyrical language that is not boring. But what we have, I think, also is sort of pop writing. And by that, I mean writing that sort of pops. I'm thinking of like Bruno Diaz. And we have terrific colloquial language. I think language has actually expanded. and 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 there's different ways to have language be evocative and lyrical. And yes, even moving and wickedly funny and all the rest of it.
0: See, doesn't that make you want to write a novel, though? Because all of those things are out there. Yeah. All of that can be yours. Just draw the lumberjack on the back of the oh, matchbook.
1: I know. And- I know. I really want to. I really, really want to. All right. I'll do I'll. I'll write a novel today.
0: <laughs> you know how you can do a novel today? Do like 80 font.
1: At the very least, I'll have a novella.
0: Yes, definitely. How do you stand up and tell a funny story? And I mean, is there advice that you would give to like someone like me with an AARP card who would just love to do that.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think what that advice is. There's a lot of advice. It's no different than any other writing. You're looking for conflict, you're looking for characters, you're looking for unexpected twists and turns. You're looking for sort of small moments that can be blown up to illustrate sort of bigger points. You're looking for anything that a writer looks for, and then you tell it on stage 60 or 70 times.
0: Does it get better or does it get more slick?
1: It gets better and sometimes it gets worse and sometimes it gets, you know, tiresome. You have to find ways to keep it fresh for yourself.
0: Do you have a kind of kill your darlings thing where you love a line? Yeah. And then you realize it has to go
1: all the time. Well, in my stand up right now, I talk about the national anthem and I talk about why I like the title mm-hmm. of our national anthem. And then I have a line that always worked really well, and lately it has felt really tired, and so I've taken it out. And the line is, but the but the country whose national anthem title best reflects who they are is Canada, because in only two words, they managed to convey that even they are slightly disappointed in themselves. And then I say, oh, Canada. I love that line. It's funny, but for some reason, it's not been coming out funny. And so sometimes what I do is I retire a joke for a while and then I'll resuscitate it and it will feel funny again.
0: So I was reading, not your fiction because that doesn't, the long fiction doesn't exist yet, but I was reading your new book, Congratulations, A Better Man, a Mostly Serious Letter to My Son and really liking it. And you quote that George Carlin line, Here's all you have to know about men and women. Women are crazy, men are stupid, and the main reason women are crazy is that men are stupid. But then you get serious and you say that, of course, that line isn't true, but you're grappling here with male anger and hostility, and you talk about gun violence. And you say that there are limited ways that men tend to express themselves through anger and withdrawal. But then you talk about how those have been a part of your humor in the past, at least. Can you speak to that and to withdrawal and maleness?
1: Yeah. So generally speaking, the the way men have been encouraged to express themselves or the way the sort of two options that men have emotionally has been anger and withdrawal. And those can kind of manifest themselves in different ways. For me, my sort of emotional life centered around withdrawal and the way it manifested itself is through sarcasm and using a kind of deadpan humor which became the foundation of my career but i found that that withdrawal professionally and personally to be it became really limiting. as i as i matured and as i entered into marriage and fatherhood i felt like that withdrawal was no longer serving me that i for me to be the person that i wanted to be as a father and as a husband and as a performer I had to figure out new modes of expression. I had to figure out how to re-engage with the world.
0: And how did you do that?
1: Through a lot of self-examination and moving towards uncomfortable emotions and choosing to look at that stuff and, and try to understand it a little bit better.
0: Wrapping up here, you, in addition to all of your literary and performance chops. You were the host of two game shows, is that correct?
1: One was called, trust me, I'm a game show host. One was called the easiest game show ever, but that didn't go past pilot. One was called Duck Quacks do Echo, which was sort of a game show.
0: Did you know that Emily Bronte was the host of a game show once?
1: Tell me more.
0: Bob Barker was out of town doing one of those animal rescue events, <laughs> and she had to fill in on the Price is Right. Uh-huh. You don't remember this? It was, just, it was a week. Yeah. so she, Well, she kept encouraging contestants to guess a half penny or a farthing for the whirlpool washer and dryer. So nobody got it.
1: I don't remember this.
0: That was such a bad, see, if I was doing standup that, you'd be like, Uh take it out, take it out. (laughs) But I thought that today, if you would indulge me, uh, maybe you could be a contestant on a very, very, very brief selected shorts game show and I could be the host. I tried to create a really minimal one just for you, one that would tie in some of your interests. Okay. This is the lightning round, and it will be very, very brief. And the focus today is on anagrams. Do you like Wordle?
1: And mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Who doesn't love an anagram?
0: Right? Everybody loves anagrams. So, okay, this first one is a book title. Can you find the classic novel in this anagram, Weighing the Hurts?
1: Weighing the Hurts?
0: Yes, H-U-R-T-S.
1: Yeah, that's that's uh, Wuthering Heights.
0: Wuthering Heights, absolutely. Doesn't it sound like the name of a book that could have been published like in the early 90s?
1: Yeah, it actually does.
0: Mm-hmm. Those gerund titles are kind of big.
1: Yeah, a woman uh, going through a divorce and it's about the alimony settlement <laughs> that she's going to get.
0: Right, that's great. That's right. Okay, now the second and last one. Can you find the modern master of writing and performance and comedy in this anagram? And I'll give you two anagrams of the same person. I came back in Hall or label Maniac Hick.
1: Maniac Hick.
0: Label Maniac Hick.
1: Yes, but I would disagree with your descriptor of master of anything well, jack of all trades perhaps
0: jack of all trades chameleon man of comedy
1: <laughs> dilettantes perhaps
0: <laughs> no renaissance
1: no That's renaissance
0: all... chameleon No.
1: you've already uh over described to me Merely yeah. journeyman
0: well i am impressed that you that you saw it right away, because sometimes we can't see ourselves, Michael. (laughs)
1: Well, that is certainly true in my case.
0: I'm really, really happy to talk to you. So thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for the free writing advice. I feel like I, I I get at least one credit in a college seminar for that.
0: Definitely. More than that. You're on your way.